0: Welcome to Unspoken Unsung Have you ever thought about what it takes to make it into Major League Baseball as a starting pitcher? Home plate is 60 feet from the pitcher's mound and only 17 inches wide. Imagine the skill and steely nerves it takes to consistently throw a baseball 90 miles per hour into a strike zone roughly 3 feet high by 17 inches wide against the best hitters in the world. Not only that, but to develop a repertoire of pitches that curve or drop still delivered into that 3 feet by 17 inch window in front of tens of thousands of fans. Now imagine the skill and steady nerves it takes to protect a presidential candidate or visiting head of state with the Secret Service, or to locate and seize huge loads of drugs being smuggled into the country in shipping containers, planes, and boats as an agent of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Jay Pettibone is a man who's done all of that and more. Jay is, as you might expect, a steady and calm. He's also authentically humble and down-to-earth. It's time to meet him. Welcome to Unspoken Unsung's Conversation with Jay Pettibone. Jay Pettibone, welcome.
1: Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Well, your your life is so fascinating to me. There's so much to get to. I just want to jump right in from the start. So born in Mount Clemens, Michigan. Yes. And how long were you there? Just a few years, really. I hmm. don't remember much of that. Yeah. Uh, Mount Clemens is north of
1: Detroit, and that's where our family was from, and I just don't remember much about it. Uh-huh. Tell me about your, your mom and your dad. Um, yeah. Both deceased now, unfortunately, but uh, great mom and dad Mm -hmm. um, did a lot for us, you know, family first, uh, always there for us, working hard, at least on my dad's end, always working hard for us and supporting the family. And mom was home a lot with us as kids and involved in all of our activities and always there for for us to watch sports games and activities with us. And uh, yeah, just uh, a good set of parents. Dad is a Uh, World War II vet. bit of a disciplinarian which is you know nothing wrong with that either <laughs> uh, but yeah I think they did a good job with us and took good
0: care of us all three uh, of us kids yeah what were your early interests as a kid
1: I think sports early on came into play for me right away um, we lived near an elementary school and uh, we were over there a lot playing riding bikes to the field and mostly baseball for me mm-hmm. But to some basketball in there too but uh, I think sports and that was even before uh, the age when you could really start an
0: organized uh, activity. Mm-hmm. Was that something that your dad pushed or promoted in any way? Um, not really pushed, but uh, he
1: encouraged me to be involved in something. Um, and once I started Little League, as far as the organized baseball, he was always there and he was a coach on my teams mm. uh, for my teams, as well as my brothers, uh, bringing us up through the, the various levels of Little League.
0: Mm-hmm. So. So, I I hear a wild rumor that he actually built a pitching mound in the backyard for you. That's true, yes. Where was that? In, um, in Anaheim. We uh-huh. grew up pretty much in Anaheim. That's the When we first
1: came out from Michigan and with a few-year stop in Utah, we made our way to Anaheim. And in that neighborhood there, we had a good-sized yard. And he measured out and uh, built a wooden uh, pitching mound with a little bit of elevation there. And uh, there was different levels for the home plate, as far as from little league to pony league to the major league level. So as I got older and my brother got older, he would move that plate back.
0: But uh, he would always catch us uh, in that backyard. Uh huh. And he coached you on technique, or did you have other? Yeah, a
1: little bit. He was.
0: He didn't really play organized
1: ball himself. He's he was athletic. Mm-hmm. But he was more of a sandlot player growing up, just playing with friends and stuff. But he was well read. He was always talking to me and my brother about as we were pitchers, uh, developing different pitches. and he would read these things and I get, get newspaper articles and he would get books on the subject, and he would teach us through that. Mm-hmm. And he was really good about that. I remember one instance in that backyard, uh, one part of the house was kind of near the home plate area, and he was teaching me th- <laughs> how to throw a curveball. And I remember I threw that first or second pitch right through his bedroom window.
0: Oh no! It didn't didn't break like it was supposed to. So so what the 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 mount the the home plate was in with a window behind it. Yeah, to my
1: right was slightly where the where the window was. So the pitch <laughs> got away from me a little bit. Went right through his his bedroom window by where he slept.
0: Oh, that's kind of a funny. I story. would think if he were to do it over, he'd probably point it the other direction.
1: Yeah. It could have been,
0: but um, yeah, it was pretty funny. So when you moved out of Michigan to Utah, what what um, made that happen? It sounds a lot of times I, people that I've known that lived in the Midwest or the East, the family stayed pretty well rooted there. It sounds. Yeah, to... it was more my dad's um, work. <laughs> work had brought him that way.
1: And we were really the first family to leave Michigan, leave all the relatives from that area. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of an adventure for our part. we went out there and then uh, he went out eventually to anaheim and we were still in utah while he was getting settled and i remember he he was sending us postcards with the pictures of disneyland and can't wait till you get to see this and you know the uh so you were
0: looking forward to moving to anaheim sure
1: yeah we were yeah. yeah from what he was telling us about how nice it was and the weather and all yeah we were looking forward to that yeah how long in utah it was just a few years and my brother was born there Uh in those few years Mm -hmm. my brother Doug so yeah he was born and then we we went on and my sister graduated from high school in Utah and then I
0: came out west yeah that's great so college Chapman College how was it that you came to choose Chapman well I actually went to Fullerton Junior College for two years out of high school
1: I went to Anaheim High School And then I had some other opportunities to go to different schools to play baseball. Um, But I decided to go to Fullerton Junior College to develop a little bit more and then look for maybe better opportunity after the two years of junior college going on to a four-year school. So I eventually went to Chapman, and I did have some choices of where I wanted to go, but I I wanted to pitch. That was my primary position. So I wanted to pitch on a regular basis. Um, There was a story where... I had the opportunity to go to Cal State Fullerton at that same time. And they won the College World Series in 1979. So I could have been a part of a World Series team, but how much I pitched during that time, I don't know if mm. that would have been happen, happening for me. But at Chapman, I was, you know, every week I was pitching. That's how I wanted to, to do to get exposed for the baseball scouts to be able to see me. So it worked out. We did well. Uh, we were a Division II school. Some of the bigger schools like Cal State Fullerton would be a Division One school, but we did well in division two in both years i was there we went to regionals and lost before we went to the world series
0: so you must have had some success in high school that had you believe you know in other words how did you build the belief that this was possible and something that that was worthy of you working that hard for yeah it was something i always wanted to do you know growing up all those
1: years playing little league and things i always wanted to be a professional ball player as did many of my friends that i was with and it's kind of my goal to get into that and then I was kind of a late bloomer in high school. I, I had some success, but wasn't at the level where a lot of guys were getting a lot of looks um, from professional teams. I did have a, a co-player in high school that was drafted very high by the Chicago White Sox. And people were always coming out and looking at him. But he was a, a big guy and threw hard. And um, like I said, I was a late bloomer, kind of a skinny kid. Um, I could pitch, throw strikes, had different pitches I could throw, but wasn't overpowering. like like he was. So, Mm. once I got into college, those things developed. I got stronger, threw harder and developed my skills.
0: So, that's an interesting thing Mm. to a layman like me about how drafts happen, how people get drafted. How did you get drafted?
1: Well, um, every year there was a a June baseball draft and uh, all 30 Major League teams have an opportunity to pick up somebody in that draft and especially Southern California. It's heavily scouted um, they're scouts at just about every game. If somebody has some some talent, they're out there seeing them. So, yeah, if you're you're good enough, they're going to find you. Wow, so, especially Southern California.
0: So, so you didn't have that agent that show me the money story wasn't yours, huh? Not at that level, no. <laughs> and even when I was drafted, you know, a
1: lot of guys had agents to go through that <laughs> process. It was just my dad and I that sat down with the team and negotiated a contract and Uh and on my way and that's really what I wanted just an
0: opportunity to see how far I could go. So being signed didn't just put you on the in the in the show so to speak. Right. So you you started out in what 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 level yeah baseball is different from other professional sports in that there's a minor league system Um,
1: like a ladder you have to climb each step to get to the major league level there's rookie league starting out single A double A, triple A, then the major leagues. Mm. Other sports like football and basketball, you can go right into the, the major level. So you
0: went through all those levels? Went through all those steps, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. it's kind of funny because I think of that movie, Bull Durham. Is there any similarity between that movie and reality? Well, actually there is, yeah. Those long bus rides
1: that you're on for hours upon hours. Um, some of the the antics that go on at the games and after the games. Um, some of the things within the, like the promotions that the teams will put on, the experience at the ballpark and a lot of that that came out in the movie, yeah, you, you see a lot of that. I got to see just about every state in the country. Well, wow. uh, I just checked off uh, my last two, the two Dakotas or two states I didn't get to see, but really everything else I got to see through those years of playing baseball and traveling throughout the country. With all 50? Yes. Well, Alaska is another one I have to go to. So the last one I have now is is get Alaska. So Uh that'll get all 50. But most states I got to see during
0: those traveling years on a bus. Uh So and in the course of that time, other than your father, was there anybody uh, offering you guidance or helping you with like career management or planning or coaching about what it takes to get into the bigs and make it? Not really. I I did have some really good coaches along the way.
1: Back when I played in, in junior high school, we had a full-on hardball baseball team as we had football and track and everything else. I know that's changed today, but even at that level, I had a great uh, coach. And then on the high school, having a, a really uh, excellent coach as well. Mm-hmm. And they kind of steered me and guided me. And We had several guys off of our, I think there was four on our high school baseball team we eventually played pro baseball, so it was really unusual. But the coach did a good job of uh, directing us. So you you had what six
0: years in the minors?
1: Um, well, I signed in 1979, and I made it to the major leagues in 1983, and I played until
0: 1985. So, parts of six seasons I played. Wow. wow. And and when you stopped playing? No, I understand that you were, you were with the Twins, and then the Twins pr- traded you for Jay Spire, Chris Spire. That's right. Yeah. Which, who didn't even end the year, did he? Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was a player to be named later in a trade in the offseason of 1985. Uh-huh. So it would have been actually 84. The season was 1985. So I was traded to the Cardinals for Chris Spire, And I was that player to be named later. And I got to spring training with the Cardinals. And they were loaded with right-hand pitching, which is what I was. And I, they had no room for me, basically. And they were going to put me down in the lower minor leagues. And they offered me a pitching coach position. Position. And I thought, well, it's probably time to,
0: to move on. Hmm. Pitching always struck me as being uniquely pressure-packed position. I mean, there you are. It's on you. You you were both a starter and a reliever, were you not? For the most part, I was a starter. I just had a few relief appearances in
1: my career, mm-hmm. but for the most part, the starter with the twins. It's still it, That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? It is. You, you get used to it, though. Um, as a starter, you kind of build up. To every fifth day you're going to pitch and you kind of work your routine as far as working out, throwing on the side, getting mentally prepared. Um, I think relief pitching may be even more difficult because you don't know when you're going to go in and you have to be ready just about at, uh, any time to you know, jump in. Plus it's never
0: a good situation when you're going right, in. Right. you
1: got to come in and close the door and uh, put out that fire. So yeah, the relief can be tough. How do
0: you mentally prepare for that?
1: As far as the starting? Yeah. Um, you know, it's a lot of review and, and scouting the other team ahead of time. That always gave me confidence when I had a good idea of what the other opponent was going to be like. Um, I kept a little black book with notes in it uh, about hitters' weaknesses and things maybe I could uh, do to get them out. Mm-hmm. And then um, that would give me confidence. And then um, just relying on my stuff. I wasn't an overpowering pitcher. I was more of a control pitcher and change speeds, um, change the type of pitch I threw. And I felt like I could throw any pitch at any count, um, you know, hopefully
0: get somebody out. So, hmm. so when, when after the Cardinals, you say they offered you both a coaching position or something down in a in what triple A. Yeah, even lower than that.
1: Um, what happens in spring training, uh, the cuts start getting made at the major league level and push people down to triple A. Then those people get pushed down to double A. So they were looking maybe to put me in double-A where I had been even several years before that. So, Was that
0: a big disappointment?
1: At the time it was, yeah. yeah. I was in my late 20s at the time and, um, you know, thinking about how long I was going to be able to play and, and what I was going to do after baseball. Um, my degree was in education when I went to Chapman. Chapman University, what, mm-hmm. you, what it's called now. And I thought I'd be a teacher and a coach uh, after baseball. But... That had changed along the way. My my thoughts on that, but yeah, at the time I was disappointed because I put so much into it and you know wanted it to continue. But I knew there would be a time when it would have to be end, come to an end.
0: That's something that you, your family has turned into a bit of a baseball dynasty. It seems.
1: Yeah, it's just funny how that's worked out. Uh, my boys, my nephew, and they're all right-hand pitchers. So that's <laughs> yeah, pretty good. It's been enjoyable
0: for me. So your oldest, Jonathan? Yes, oldest is Jonathan. Now. And, and he's, he went with the Phillies, did he not? Yes, he signed out of uh,
1: Esperanza High School in Anaheim. Mm-hmm. He was drafted in the third round by the Philadelphia Phillies. Wow. and He played from 08 to uh, 2015 with them, mm-hmm. and with a couple of years in the Major League level.
0: And so having already been through this, was that something that you had guidance or things you could offer him as advice about what to do and how to f- think and feel? I think so, as, as much as I can. Yeah. Um, you know, he's gotta get his, his own mind around uh, the whole
1: situation and, you know, make it fit for him. But yeah, as much, much as I could, I, I helped him along the way and as well as my younger son, Austin.
0: Yeah, Austin's still
1: playing. He is, he, was, um, he went to UC Santa Barbara. Uh, both boys took a different route. Jonathan signed out of high school. And then in the off seasons went to college, and then Austin went from high school right to UC Santa Barbara. Then after his junior year, which he's eligible to, to be drafted after his junior year, he signed with the Texas Rangers.
0: Mm. Which is who signed you? That's true. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. So we had that little connection.
0: So in, in retrospect, you were saying that part of the the thinking that you had toward the end was your age was a factor. Right. And yeah. so from what you see now would it be would it have been better like you say sometimes people start right after high school would it have been better to start earlier or was it uh, do you feel that it was a good choice finishing college for myself yeah definitely
1: college cuz <clears throat> um I had got my degree behind me and I went off and played baseball for those years so whenever it ended I knew I could jump right into a, another career cuz I had mm. my degree
0: Oh that's good. Yeah. That's good. So what happened after after baseball?
1: Well, for me, um, like I said, I had a degree in education. I thought I was going to go the teaching route, but like halfway through my baseball career, I just was thinking and talking to other people about careers, and and particularly in law enforcement. I had a guy uh, a couple years older than me in high school that went into the Secret Service, and talking to him in some of the off-seasons and some of the stuff he was doing, as far as protecting the president and some of his long-term investigations he was doing, I was thinking, well, that's pretty good. That sounds interesting to me.
0: Mm-hmm. So from the start of, of, the, of your consideration of law enforcement as a career, you, were you initially directed to the Secret Service? That was your intent?
1: It was. And then I looked into it a little bit more, and I found how much they really traveled. Um, if they're with a candidate or a president or a vice president, they're going to be traveling with him wherever they go. And away from family, away from friends, um, could, you know, be difficult on a family. Uh, I wasn't married at the time, but was looking, you know, to get married soon. I had met Linda, my wife, and didn't think that would be the best way to go. So there's several other law enforcement agencies, and I started testing and applying with those. Uh, Some of those would include the FBI. I did test with the Secret Service, um, Naval Criminal Investigative Service. ATF, which is Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and then U.S. Customs, and I decided on U.S. Customs.
0: Mm-hmm. So you started. How long after after your baseball career?
1: Well, it, it's quite a process to go through. You have um, you know initial application. You have oral interviews. You have written tests. You have physical exams, um, psychological exams, background checks, polygraphs. So it takes a good part of a year. Uh, to get through all that and get hired. Um, But I found out my degree met the minimum qualifications for me to apply. But without military, without other law enforcement or a specialized degree in law or accounting or something like that, I was a little behind others um, that are applying. So I decided to go to a local police department in Orange Mm. County um, Mm -hmm. in Brea, the city of Brea. So I was hired by them and I ended up going with them for three and a half years, and then after at that point, I was I was ready with my degree and my law enforcement background. I was, mm. was ready to apply, and I really had my choice of which federal agencies um, I wanted to work with. What did Breya have you doing? Well, initially, I went through the the police academy, which was eighteen weeks, and got through that. And then you start out in patrol, um, various shifts, sometimes day, sometimes graveyard, and you're basically working the patrol car, responding to calls. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think because of my baseball background, they wanted to put me into a program with the schools. Uh, there was a school resource officer oh, position. Yeah. Yeah. And they uh, taught the D.A.R.E. program, the, the Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program. So they had me go there for two years uh, teaching in the schools. And I really enjoyed that, being out there with the kids and, and teaching them the harms of drugs and, and how to get a good support group and uh, alternatives to drug use. and. Uh, how to deal with peer pressure and things like
0: that. So yeah. that was a rewarding, rewarding, rewarding time to be with them. Given the time frame then that it takes to get into other agencies, you were ready, at the, at the end of three years you moved to another agency, but when did you start actually applying and, and how do you plan for that? Yeah, I, I, like probably about a year
1: is when I started applying. Mm-hmm. I got a couple years under my belt at Brea, um, which made me look good as far as my resume. And then um started applying to the federal agencies. And then I was learning more and more about what it, each agencies did and which ones would be send me off to somewhere in the country and which ones would keep me local. Uh, fortunately being from Southern California with the high cost of living not a lot of people want to stay here and live here because of that cost. Mm-hmm. So being from here and wanting to stay here it was easier for me to um, be hired mm-hmm. here in the Southern California area. Mm-hmm. And Which agency picked you up? So I had several choices, but I ended up going with U.S. Customs. Um, You know, now after the events of 9-11, several agencies have merged under Homeland Security. But at the time, U.S. Customs was under the Treasury Department, along with Secret Service, along with ATF, IRS, and then, of course, Customs. Mm -hmm. But they were going to keep me local, and they come to find out, did some really interesting investigations that I really uh, got into.
0: What kind of investigations do they do?
1: We think about customs that could be anything coming or going from the border of the united states so smugglers any kind of smuggling yes yeah i um, mean you could i mean the one you think of about most is drugs but it could be it could be parrots from south america that are illegally here or yeah some type of food substance from china um, coming into our country it could be firearms leaving our country it could be money going out of the country it could be our t- high technology or military com- parts and components leaving the country So there's a wide variety. And then being part of the Treasury Department, we would supplement the Secret Service every four years during the election campaigns. So I got to kind of do my dream (laughs) as far as being a Secret (laughs) Service agent, but not having to travel all the time. So I'd be assigned uh, on on a campaign for every four years. And if heads of state would come into the Southern
0: California, we would help with that as well. Wow. With with immigration or, or customs, with customs. So, what kinds of investigations did you do?
1: Well, I started out in in drug smuggling. I was assigned to the Long Beach, L.A. Harbor, which is the largest um, seaport in the country. So, with that, there's a lot of activity. Our focus was on drugs coming in the United States from from all over. We also had um, anything coming up from the border into the Southern California area that vehicles or trucks coming from south of the border from Mexico or Central America coming our way. We'd be involved in those drug investigations. And Los Angeles also had a mail facility unit where drugs that are being shipped from foreign, from the Middle East, from Asia, coming into the U.S. via mail parcel. We'd get involved in those. Um, We would do cruise ships, sailboats, the container ships, Um, you name it, any type of drug coming into Southern California, we would be involved in.
0: So you would be, would you be like a uniformed inspector
1: that would go in and? We weren't the uniform inspectors. We were the special agent. There are uniformed inspectors. Um, Mm -hmm. Those are the customs inspectors that do a great job in the seaports looking and hunting for those drugs inside containers, um, using x-ray machines or dogs trying to, or sometimes just digging into the cargo, trying to find out what drugs are in there. And then they basically hand it off to us to do the investigation. We'd find out where it's going to go. We'd set up surveillance to see who picks it up, um, those type of things. So, yeah, large container shipments, the 20 and 40 foot containers coming from foreign down wow. to a small mail parcel coming from the Middle East that had uh, heroin or opium in it. We'd do all those investigations. Wow. Any any particular cases stand out? Uh, there was, back in the 80s and the early 90s, there's some large. Cocaine shipments, large marijuana shipments coming from um, Thailand and Philippines. Uh, I'm talking about tons Mm -hmm. of of that product, Um, but a lot of those were fun. Um, Boy, it's hard to say, you know, because all of them were unique. Yeah. We'd get a lot of intelligence coming from those three-letter agencies throughout the world. You know, to be on the lookout for this boat or this person. I remember one in particular, we were set up uh, in the L.A. Harbor on a vessel that came up from South America and they didn't have particular information other than they knew somebody was going to be picking up cocaine off the boat at some time or somehow. So we were all set up around the clock on this vessel uh, that was unloading the container shipments and in the middle of night we saw this guy a scuba diver coming across the water in a scooter and he goes to the back of the boat and he goes out of sight and that's where the rudder housing is. And apparently there's a an open space in there where, you know, something can be hidden. Right. And so he's up in there for several minutes and then he comes back out on a scooter coming back across the harbor. And that's when we, with our boats, interdicted him and stopped him. And it ended up being several hundred pounds of cocaine that was hidden up in there. Wow. So it was like we're all shocked in the middle of the night. This, <laughs> this guy's coming across the water and I was like, Wow. But um, some of those mail parcel ones were kind of interesting, too. Um, a lot of them would be coming by some of the commercial carriers like UPS, FedEx, DHL. And at the time, those companies would give us the uniform and the truck to do the delivery. They didn't want to do, have anything to do with that. Right. So we would go to the door and knock and get them to sign for their package. And then later on, go in with a search warrant and most of the time find more stuff or, or scales or something like that. But... Oh. I remember the first time as a rookie, they dressed me up in a UPS uniform and put me in the truck. <laughs> I had to deliver this, this package of opium to this house, and it was answered by all these, these bikers. The door, doors open. these guys that, I'm pretty tall, but these guys are much taller and bigger than I And, and I don't know what my voice sounded like, but it was like, sir, could you sign right here? <laughs> so I get him to sign and then.
0: <laughs> With your hand shaking, you yeah. take this. So they sign
1: for the package, and I go back and tell them what I saw. And you know, a few minutes later, we go in and collect our package, and you know, more drugs. But uh, yeah, we did a lot of that stuff.
0: Um, So it sounds like you had undercover assignments as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, that would have been about the extent of it. um, You Mm -hmm. know, delivering a package, whatever my appearance, you know, fit would be best. A lot of the guys that did real undercover work, as far as negotiating a drug deal. They'd have to speak the language or look the part. Uh, mm-hmm. But that sometimes I posed as a banker or, or something like that. But you
0: know, there's guys that really got into it in and yeah. some major roles. Well I mean, now so you had a, you, you were a relative newlywed at the time too, right? That's right. This all kind of came together. Uh baseball career ended,
1: looked at a new career, got married in there. Yeah, it all it was all kind of happening at the same time.
0: So I would think that a new bride would be a little concerned for your safety
1: yeah i'm sure linda had her her moments of wondering <laughs> yeah what was going to go on and yeah. you know i'd tell her what kind of things are we got a surveillance plan and this and that but yeah yeah it's just this just part of the job you know a Little so bit but of,
0: you did did you f- find yourself in what you felt were dangerous situations
1: yeah looking back now I think, wow, that was, that was pretty, pretty dangerous, but you know, we're, those operations are pretty well planned and we have a lot of uh, employees, you know, personnel involved in those mm-hmm. things where everything's going to be covered and, you know, all the safety issues are taken care of. There's a lot of, a lot of goes into the operational plan when it comes mm-hmm. to doing a search warrant, or arrest warrant, surveillance. Um, all those measures are taken into consideration ahead of time. and.
0: So it sounds as though a lot of other options, other than just coming across the border, is is are these cars coming across the border? Is that relatively a minor percentage of what's actually coming in?
1: Yeah, like you said, it it comes in all kinds of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned the mail parcel and the sea containers, um, vehicles and and trucks coming over the border. Yeah, just use your imagination as to how many different uh, ways uh, that can happen. Um, The way we would get involved in Southern California near Los Angeles would be we'd get a call from San Diego that they have a tip or a vehicle coming through the border and they were going to follow up a good ways northbound until we could come down southbound to take over the surveillance. So Mm -hmm. that San Clemente checkpoint area was oftentimes an area where we'd meet to take the handoff from San Diego units and Mm -hmm. we'd take the the, uh, vehicle or truck uh, further north and who knows where that would go. Sometimes it would go into the Bay Area. Sometimes out in the desert, we never knew. There was other times we had to hand off that, that vehicle to another agency further north. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was common to t- take long-term surveillances and follow. because you want to see where it goes, um, you know, who picks it up. Because you just don't want to take the, the courier or the driver. You want to see who's behind the whole network, if you can.
0: Mm-hmm. How long with, with Customs? Were you with Customs?
1: Well, technically, my whole 25-year federal career, um, the only thing that changed was the merger in 2003. Again, because of the events of 9-11, our name changed from U.S. Customs under the Treasury Department, we fell under Department of Homeland Security. So I really continued to do the same type of work all the way through my career with that name change in 2003. And then I went um, all the way up to 2014. Um, federal law enforcement has a mandatory retirement age of 57 so I got to that age and had to mandatory retire. So with me having kids in college and having payments I thought it would be a good idea to continue and I continue to work today at the Orange County District Attorney's Office.
0: So that you know that but that sounds like a yet another time I mean you you, you went through so much so much effort and blood sweat and tears you might say to become a pro baseball player and when that career ended, I mean, it was something that wasn't your choice necessarily other than you could have stayed on as a coach or dropped down. And then being aged out, it, it, was there a similarity in the way both of those felt? I guess both have the transition periods. And, and in both
1: cases, I knew both were going to end. I knew baseball wouldn't go on forever. And I have only th- so many throws in my arm that, you know, my arm was only going to last for that length of time. And it was going to end, you know, because age is against you in a sport like baseball Mm -hmm. um i could feel at least in my arm and in the um, the speed of the ball i guess coming out of my arm uh that things were slowing down and things were changing as i got closer to my 30s um in the same way with the federal law enforcement i knew there was going to be a a sunset for that Mm -hmm. and then i had to look beyond that as well to to what
0: i wanted to do so you saw that time coming and then you prepared for the next stage i did and with with you say you're with district attorney of orange county orange county right and what is it you do for them i
1: started out doing insurance fraud violations of um, insurance could be auto insurance it could be medical insurance health insurance and we'd work closely with the insurance companies in, in different types of fraud cases so i did that for a few years and then i went into the domestic violence unit where i was working with victims and getting cases ready for trial um, Actually, that was in West Court in Orange County. There was eight cities in West Court that we cover all the the felony uh, domestic violence cases. Mm. And from there, I went into child abduction. I did that for almost two years. Um, And that's where, for most part, one of the parents abducted the child from the other parent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the time, it's a parent that's not supposed to have the child full-time, and they decided they're going to run off, and they don't want to listen to the family court rules anymore. They're going to do their own thing and... We'd have to track them down and and get them back to the other Mm -hmm. parent
0: i would imagine that involves some travel
1: do you it does um oftentimes i'd get arrest warrants out of orange county and get that made extraditable where if they went to other states we could uh, get the person and get them back to orange county for prosecution and sometimes i had to travel to pick up that person which is extradition and work with um, those agencies to get them back but i found out that the orange county sheriff's department Fortunately, has a team that does extraditions worldwide. So I started relying on that team um, to do that for me. So the travel went down quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we worked um, cases and still do all over the the world where we're looking for kids. And if they go out of country, we do have to work with uh, the U.S. State Department. And there's a thing called the Hague Treaty. Um, Over 100 countries are in the Hague Treaty for child abduction where they'll work with other countries as far as getting the child back to the the rightful parent um, from whatever country it's from. So we're working closely with other agencies um, worldwide through the State Department. Yeah, and I'm was called on many times to, to recover a kid in our area.
0: as from some other country around the world that mm-hmm. happened quite a bit. So that's kind of a, a I would think a double-edged sword because it seems like often you would have a really wonderful experience of, you know, how joyful the reunion is but then sometimes you, you hear these stories like the Elion Gonzalez thing way back when and, and you see these images of a terrified child and somebody, you know, wearing full combat gear coming in right. to take him away from his mom or whatever. How would you characterize the, the overall feeling that it is when you solve one of these? Hey, you're right. I mean, one parent's going to be happy and the
1: other one's not going to be. But <clears throat> really you're relying on the family court, um, what, what they've decided, who the the parent should be, what parent should have physical or um, legal custody. And that's determined by them. And we just assist that family court in getting it back to, to the parent that they've decided should have. But it's definitely an emotional time. Um, sometimes you, you do have to take by court order the child from one parent and give to the other. And it's mm-hmm. a, it a, can be a difficult thing. But a lot of those cases do end up back in family court. And there is visitation that's, that slowly starts to come back around, even though the parent had run off. Um, it gets a little tougher when they've run out of country and uh, tried to
0: avoid prosecution things like that but you know, recently we had a conversation and you directed me to some case that you were working on and i went and found this guy online the you know i he the, what is he posted a website or something i believe so yeah that guy sounded so whacked out i thought it was a joke mm-hmm. i thought you were putting me on <laughs> could yeah. you tell us about that case well, it's just it's an
1: ongoing case, but it's it's an older case too. It's um a couple of decades old actually and um the mother had run off with two kids um to some place unknown. And um the father has no idea, no kind contact at all mm. with the children or with the taking parent. And um we got a few leads recently out of country that we're trying to focus on, but yeah, the emotion for that left behind parent is like it happened yesterday. Yeah. You you, you talk to him on the phone or you know, his emails and stuff. And it's just, you know, gut wrenching as far as what he's going through every day. Hmm. Uh, His life's pretty much been on stop. It's been paused from that point on. And you know, he hasn't started another family or another relationship or anything. It's just all focused
0: on the missing kids. And in the course of that type of an investigation, do you work closely with that guy? So you see him often? We do, yeah, not as much in
1: those those older cases because they don't have any new information to add, but a lot of that's on our part. But yeah, th- through the process and any tips or new information we get, we, we reach out to them, mm-hmm. try to help them, yeah. We work closely with the left-behind parents is what we call them,
0: um, the left-behind parent. Then you have the taking parent. You do another thing connected with kids that really I think is worth mentioning and really giving you a shout-out for. And that's Mm -hmm. the work that you do with orphans or, you know, with an orphanage in Mexico. How did you get involved in that and what's that all about? Yeah, it was a few years ago. I had
1: heard that there was an orphanage in Ensenada that needed uh, some help, you know, for putting on programs and bringing down clothes and cooking for the kids and putting on a fair or carnival for them, those type of things. I heard it from uh, a church out in the Murrieta area was doing that and looking for help. So... A few years ago, uh, my wife and I and some other friends went down there as part of that group and helped. And then ever since then, we've been involved uh, pretty regularly. Um, typically in the fall, they have that f- uh, festival, that uh, fair or carnival we put on with games and hay rides and a, a bounce house and a churro cart and things like that for the kids. Mm. And then Christmas time, we, we get presents and bring them down to the kids and spend some time with them and singing Christmas carols or um, just having fun, cooking for them, things like that. And then something in the spring, and then throughout the year as needed. As, as things come up, they go down, and they do a good job of bringing other churches from around the country down there to to do projects, um, you know, build a new building or or do maintenance down there, um, or just spend time with the
0: kids. Was that partly inspired in your case with the work that you do, trying to reunite children with parents, or is there any relationship to that at all?
1: I think just kind of coincidental, I was happened to be working child abduction cases in the county of Orange when that whole opportunity came up. But Mm -hmm. no, I think anytime you can help or serve or do anything like that is a good thing. Yeah. Kind of fit. And um, you know, those kids definitely have needs and uh, the the parents oftentimes are still alive, but they're not in a condition where they can have the kids right now. So um, you know, they're in a tough spot, a lot of those kids, but I think it's good that we can go down and they can see somebody their parents' age or, you know, they're about uh, thinking about them and
0: caring about them. I think it's good. Yeah. So I find myself thinking, thinking about the transitions in your life, which is just amazing to me. And if you were to go back to the baseball section, the sports part of your life, what was the most rewarding aspect of that whole period of your life?
1: Well, I think... uh, reaching the, the major leagues mm. in 1983. I was called up uh, to the major leagues. I think that was, that was my goal all those years, uh, from my youth all the way. And I finally got that call. It's kind of funny how that happened. I had played uh double a baseball in Orlando, Florida. I had a good season there and I went to triple a Toledo, Ohio. You've heard of the Toledo mud hens. Oh, I have yeah. indeed. <laughs> so I got to, I got to play in Toledo <laughs> and I had a good success there the last, um, month and a half or so of that season. So those seasons end earlier than the major league season. So I had parked my car in Orlando, Florida, and I was I flew back to Orlando. I was getting ready to make the drive home all the way to California from Florida. And I had stopped in Tampa where an ex-roommate um, of mine with the Texas Rangers was coaching um, a college team uh, at Florida College in Temple Terrace near Tampa. So this is before cell phones and pagers and things like that. So... My parents had known I was going to make that stop for the night uh, before heading out on the road. Uh Well, fortunately, they caught me at that school and I was in the cafeteria with my friend uh, having a meal and uh, the phone came, you know, and they said, can you take this call? And I said, yeah, and it it was my parents and they gave me the number to call right away to Minnesota and says, you're coming up. We need you. So I parked my car and got on the first plane and, and headed to Minnesota. And how soon before you were on the mound? Um, so I flew the next day, and that, that night, that night game, I was charting the pitches. So typically you chart uh, the opponent the night before you start. So it was the next night after that that I actually got my wow. first major league start. And and that was the highlight of my career, that first game. I went all nine innings uh, for a complete game, but I did lose 3-1. to one. It was against the Kansas City Royals, and a guy named Willie Aikens hit a home run in the ninth inning to oh, beat me 3-1, to one, but... The good thing was, you know, I went all nine innings, um, and there was a bit of history in that game, too. Um, the reliever, Dan Quisenberry, for the Royals, he got his record-breaking save that game. Um, uh. I don't know, it was at the time, it was 45 or something like that, but he, he broke the Major League record for most saves, um, actually, for the American League, in that same game. So...
0: What what metric do the does the big league use to determine whether they want to keep a pitcher or not? Is the one loss record more important than – is that it? Yeah, you know, one loss record is a little deceptive because if you're on a team that doesn't score a
1: lot of runs, um, you're probably going to be on the losing end more often than not. Right. Um, but uh, like stats like the ERA, how many runs you give up in a nine-inning period, they look at that a lot, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's other things – like whip, which is walks and hits per inning. They mm. look at those things. Opponents' batting average, they look at those things. But yeah, back in my day, it was really just your innings pitched, how many strikeouts in a nine-inning game, how many walks do you give up in a nine-inning game, and then your earned runs, um, it was things like that. Yeah. Even you see the radar on the TV all the time now, how fast somebody's throwing. We didn't have that in, in my day. Um, actually, in the minor leagues, we'd have one pitching coach who would travel around the country with all the teams, and you may see him a couple of times a year, and he'd bring a radar gun, and once in a while you'll find out how hard you're throwing. But mm. I mean, mm. today it's just you know right away. You, each level has a pitching coach, each level has a trainer, um, a strength and conditioning coach. They have all these things now: nutritionists, um, psychologists, all these people that they help the program to develop the players. But you're really pretty much on your own in my day, uh, especially in uh, the minor leagues. Um, you know, just what you learned growing up and what worked for you, uh, So they didn't sense. have coaches that taught you a lot about technique or? They, you know, like I said, they're not around very much. So you're kind of left to your, to oh, your own. Yeah, they would make yeah. slight adjustments, but because they're not with you all the time to help develop a pitch, you know, that's a shame. it wasn't the case. But even the other guys, though, would be helpful too. You're working with a guy and he's got a, a really good pitch that's successful and something that you think maybe you could use. They would. You know, be more than happy to help you and work with you. So a lot of that came from other, other players. It's kind of interesting situation because you're on the same team, with whatever minor league level, but you're also competing for a spot at a higher level against right. the same guys. So right, you know, you're you're friends, but you're also competing against each other.
0: Well, it sounds like then, given that how much of that you really had to do by your own invention and your own initiative, that that must have that first game must have felt like the summit of Mount Everest. Oh, the first major league game? Yes. Yeah.
1: I remember that warming up for that game and was, you know, terribly nervous ahead of time, just, you know, thinking about uh, pitching against a major league team and stuff like that. And I remember our pitching coach at the time was Johnny Padres. Yes. A longtime him. Dodger. Yeah, yeah. So he was our pitching coach with the Twins. And he didn't, he came up to me and he, he didn't say anything, okay, you got to pitch George Brett this way and Willie Wilson this way. He didn't say anything like that. He just said, kind of like you did, you worked hard to get here. Now just go out and have fun you just left it at that oh that's good and that's kind of was my attitude okay well i know how to pitch so i'm just going to go out and do that and put all this other you know crowd noise and tv cameras and all that aside i'm just going to go out there and pitch and throw right to that catcher like i've always done and
0: that was that was helpful so i would imagine then in terms of the mental game then that meant that through that game especially against george brett and people like that that you had to kind of remind yourself to you know don't get too serious this is just a game is that right
1: well yeah i mean you catch yourself thinking about that because you know you know who's coming up next or who's up there right now against you so yeah, yeah you're constantly you're fighting
0: that um yeah so phase two brea what do you consider the most rewarding part of that experience
1: um well it was fun being a young man and you know driving around a patrol car and responding to a robbery in progress and burglary in progress, those kind of things are always exciting. Uh Car chase or pursuit, you know, that's the kind of stuff you look forward to in a law enforcement career. But I would say that school resource officer position that I had for those two school years, the DARE program, that was really rewarding. So I was in the schools basically in uniform, but working with the kids every day as a school teacher. So my background was in education through my degree and my original intent was to be a, a teacher coach. And then now I'm in law enforcement doing the teaching thing that I kind of in the past always wanted to do. Yeah. So I was getting yeah. the chance to do that, but just with a little bit different angle and and helping those kids. And, and they knew I played professional baseball too and just helping them at the tough time in, in their lives. You know, they're going into junior high and a lot of peer pressure and, and decisions to be made and things. I think it was a, a good time to be around those kids and try to influence the best I could. Did they know of your baseball history? They did. That was, you know, it was hard to keep that a secret, but. Yeah. And it was mentioned and the teachers knew. And so they would mention it and stuff. And yeah, a lot of the, especially the boys were interested in that and spent a lot of time talking with them. And I was always with them at lunch. That was part of the program. They would eat with the kids. And then and recess, I'd always be out on the on the grounds playing with them. So you never really rested during the day. You'd yeah, know. yeah, yeah. But that's what they wanted. They wanted to have, you know, police officer out there and. And know that, hey, they're, they're good people and they're, they're here to help you.
0: Well, I had a chance to see you at a family gathering. And there was a young man at that family gathering that wanted to throw a football with you. And the stars in that kid's eyes, I will never forget. You were his hero big time. Uh, he, matter of yeah. fact, he was a relative. That's right. I remember that. What's yeah. what's the story about that? There's a really great story about him and you and his and their, your name. So this was a cousin of mine in Michigan and unfortunately she uh, died recently
1: and these were her adopted children there was three of them but in particular you're talking about the the little boy about 10 years old and um, so we're playing catch and he knew about me and my sons playing professional baseball and he's really excited about that because he wanted to be an athlete too and he is currently but um, he wanted to look me up and my boys up on the internet and he said what's your name? and i told him it's the same as yours (laughs) and he looked at me and he thought oh yeah we have the same last name oh that had to be the thrill of his life right there yeah and then since then we've um, sent him some signed baseballs and baseball cards and stuff to make it a little more personal
0: to him oh that's good that's good so we've moved now into into brea now we're off into customs what was rewarding? What was the most rewarding aspect of that period along? that? Now we're talking about a big chunk of time, 25 years, 25 years. Yeah. So customs from 1989
1: to 2003, and then the name changed to Department of Homeland Security. Right. So special agent for all those years, but just had a name change along the way, but really kind of did the same type of work, uh, investigative work. Uh, me personally, I like those every four years doing the protection details um, um, with presidential candidates. And that was fun for me because that's something I always wanted to do uh, sometimes heads of state from other countries would come in and we'd team up with um, their secret service equivalent. We'd work with them. So that was always exciting to me. Uh, being a young man and having those big drug cases was exciting. Yeah. Um, some, like I said, some large uh, multi-ton shipments of cocaine and marijuana coming in and seeing those cases through was very exciting. Um, one thing we didn't mention was I did some child uh, exploitation cases, uh, child pornography cases, those type mm. of things. Some of those were very rewarding because some of the people that we arrested turned out to be uh, real predators. So to get those people off the street and away from kids and things was, was oh, rewarding. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I would just say some of the bigger cases uh, was exciting. There was a time we went into internal affairs. Mm-hmm. So I was investigating the investigators. Oh, really? So. Wasn't always a popular position, but I think for the most part, people knew that we were there just to keep people in line. And unfortunately, um, sometimes there's bad uh, officers in the ranks and and weeding out some of those and and finding out who they were. That was um, that was rewarding for me as well. You mentioned that you got to do some protection details. Who did you protect? Well, mostly the candidates. I didn't. Get any too big a names. Um, I think the very first one I had was Dan Quayle, so that goes back <laughs> quite a few years. Um, and then I had um, Pat Buchanan. It was a candidate yes. in there. Uh-huh. I had him. Um, Bob Dole when he made his run. Yeah, I had him, um, and his vice president um, candidate was Jack Kemp at that time. Yeah, and he was in the Southern California area quite a bit, so I was with him a lot. I had John Kerry in there. Um did I have Bill Clinton if I did it was a perimeter um, a lot of these assignments aren't up close and personal like you see on TV yeah we used to call it halls and walls um, uh. you're standing in a hallway uh, up against a wall like on the graveyard shift when the person is sleeping so mm. sometimes you never have any interaction with them at all but there's a few times I got to be on on the stage or at least a, alongside next to the stage when people were making speeches and stuff and that was that was pretty good so you don't interact with them, really? Not really. Just uh, some basic conversation. A few times I had the rope line when they come into the crowd area and there's a rope that they follow along yeah. or a fence line and they're shaking hands and you're right next to them right there. Um, I did a few of those. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the they have their inner core secret service that is with the candidate. And then some of us that are from other agencies will supplement or help them wherever
0: the need is. Yeah. That's got to be a little nerve-wracking if they're working their way along a crowd. I mean, you've got to be very vigilant, I would think. Yeah, you got to
1: keep your eyes open. And, and that's back in the days before that they really magnetom, had all the magnetometers set up before they, people would come into the yeah. to the venue. So that was a little different then, and yeah, you never knew. Um, another one I did work at the uh, Democratic National Convention in 2000 in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. They hosted that. So I was, actually for that, I was with uh, Patrick Kennedy. He was a uh, Rhode Island congressman, right? He came out here with a Capitol Hill police officer that was assigned to him. And I was basically the driver for those two. And that week or week and a half, um, you know, we're all over Southern California various events and on the campaign trail and at the DNC convention itself. So Mm -hmm. that was a busy week and a half, but
0: yeah. So, okay. So right now today, if you were to talk about what's the most rewarding part of your life right now, what would you say it is? Professionally or any way you choose,
1: you know you got to go with the family, um, yeah, meeting Mary and Linda, having our three kids that I haven't talked a whole lot about, um, Jonathan, Let's talk
0: about them, yeah
1: well, the three of Jonathan, Austin, and Ashley, those three, I mean having them and seeing them growing up and being successful at their age, um, yeah, that's probably the most rewarding thing, yeah so they're all athletes, too. Yeah, in their own way. They they turned out to be. I probably because of their mom. She was a
0: cheerleader, so
1: they probably got the genes from her.
0: <laughs> That's I think it was a twofold thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anything for the future? I mean, you've had a, a knack for being able to see when when the end of one career was coming and then look forward to what's next. Have you got anything on the uh on the drawing board for what's next in your life. As far as careers, I think I'm at the
1: end. Yeah. So I have my retirement from the federal government and then I'll have an additional smaller retirement from the county of Orange. But yeah, I think career wise, I'm I'm pretty much done and just will wind down um, as far as my work now with the DA's office. But um, yeah, I'm just looking forward getting the kids settled and when they start families and looking forward to grandkids and maybe a little bit of travel.
0: Yeah. Um, those are the things I really look forward to in the future. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, this has been terrific. So thank you, Jay. I really appreciate you spending this time with us and sharing your life. Well, you're welcome, Dan. I enjoyed enjoyed yeah. it and remembered some of the good stories
1: that I had forgot about. <laughs> that's great. Okay.
0: The Unspoken Unsung team wants to thank Jay Pettibone for generously sharing his time and his life story. In times like these when positive role models seldom make the headlines, it's reassuring that unspoken, unsung guests like Jay Pettibone remind us of what's right in the world. Be sure to join us again next month for another episode of Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that celebrates and shares. extraordinary lives of people you might pass on the street every day, unaware of how inspiring their experiences could be if you only knew. And remember, you can be part of the Unspoken Unsung team too. If there's someone whose life story or experiences you feel should be shared, let us know. Just go to the Conversator website, contact page, tell us about this person and how we might reach you. You can find us at conversaire.net backslash contact. Conversaire is spelled C O N V E R S A Y E R. That's conversaire.net contact. Unspoken, unsung was recorded in the Conversaire studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. The podcast theme music, Hope Not Hate, was written and performed by David Gwynne Jones for Zapsplat. Other music also provided by Zapsplat.